Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 88 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and also host of The Virtual Couch, um, The Mind, The Mirror, and Me, a new podcast with author Julie Lee called Love, ADHD, which is is in recording now. And that one's going to be a lot of fun talking about some journeys and discoveries around the world of adult ADHD diagnoses. And then Murder on the Couch with my daughter, Sydney. We we did a lot of filming this weekend. And the episode that's coming up, which I think will be out in about another week, does have a significant amount of narcissistic traits and tendencies. I won't spoil it and tell you what that case is about, but I will have more information. Please go check out... Um, Check out my Instagram account. Now, the reason I say that in particular is since we last met with episode 87, talking about differentiation, that I do now have a separate Instagram account for waking up to narcissism. And it is the at W-U-T-O. I, I'm having deja vu. I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but it is uh, because I think I butchered it, but it is W-U-T-N pod. So at WUTN pod. So please go find that and and follow that. That would be amazing. So I appreciate that. But let's get to today's episode. There's a lot of material to cover that I'm very excited about. And first, we'll try to put a little bit of humor in here. I had a listener write in and they said that they want to start with a joke and they say that they admit that they are using artificial intelligence for this joke. But you be the judge. I think the robots may start taking over when it comes to writing research papers and I apparently maybe some coding and that sort of thing. But I think if you are looking for a career, then I would really look into stand-up comedy because I do not think the robots are very good. You will see. So here's the joke. So a narcissist, an emotionally immature person, and a nice guy. Nope. Take two. So a narcissist, an emotionally immature person, and a guy with nice guy syndrome walk into a bar. They all sit at the counter and the bartender asks, what will it be, gentlemen? The narcissist says, I'll have a cocktail named after me because let's face it, I am the life of the party. The emotionally immature guy says, I'll have a Shirley Temple. Oh, and can I get an extra cherry and a bendy straw? And then the nice guy chimes in, you know what, I'll just have water, but can you just make sure you serve those guys their drinks first and make sure that their seats are really comfortable and then could you just throw them a compliment? They look like they need one. The bartender serves their drinks and says that'll be $25. The narcissist replies, do you know who I am? I don't think I should have to pay. The emotionally immature guy starts whining, but I didn't even get any alcohol in my drink, and and this isn't even a very bendy straw. This is absolutely unfair. And then the nice guy says, don't worry, guys, I'll cover it. And do you guys like me now? The bartender rolls his eyes and says, no wonder you guys all walked into a bar. You guys really need to work on your issues. And end scene. 
it had some potential there. So I almost feel like uh, chat GPT does a decent job of setting the table, but then it just doesn't deliver. So then admittedly, I took that same premise that these three walk into a bar and, and I asked for just a shorter joke. And here's what it came up with a narcissist an emotionally immature person and someone with nice guy syndrome walk into a bar. The narcissist says, y'all have, uh, I'll have whatever's named after me. The emotionally immature person whines, okay, I wanted their order first. Then the nice guy chimes in, I'll just have whatever you guys want if you promise that you'll like me afterward. Yeah, this is a little bit of a uh, little bit of little bit of progress there, but not a lot. But here, here is where the artificial intelligence shines. So then I said, can you just create a limerick based on the same premise? Here we go. Then we'll get to uh, we'll get to the content of today's show. A narcissist with flair and finesse, and a lad with a childlike express met a nice guy so keen, and the bar they were seen a trio of comical mess. So that, I'll take that. The limerick, that was the, the limerick for the win. So today I want to start with a letter and, and I built an episode off of this because this is, again, the more feedback that I get, which I, I want all the feedback, I really do, the more that I really start to see patterns or trends. And, and this is one that this, this person put it so well. So they said, Dear Tony, I felt compelled to write you after having consumed a significant portion of your podcast, Waking Up to Narcissism. I must say the way I came to know about it was not through my own intention, but rather my wife's. You see, she's been diligently listening to your episodes for quite some time. One day, she cautiously asked me for my opinion on a particular episode. Now, the title of your podcast isn't exactly subtle, which I think that's just really funny. I appreciate him saying that. And he said, and you don't need to be a rocket scientist to piece together her underlying message. Clearly, she believed I exhibited the traits that you discuss. She might not have directly labeled me as a narcissist, but her actions spoke louder than words. Irony at its finest. After listening to several of your episodes, it dawned on me, I think she's trying to communicate that she sees narcissistic tendencies in me. After a little bit of self-reflection, I've determined that while I may not be overtly narcissistic, I certainly am emotionally immature. The episode that struck the most profoundly was one where you delved into the differences between narcissistic personality disorder, emotional immaturity, and nice guy syndrome, which is why I started with that premise today. It was like you held up a mirror to my face, and for the first time I saw myself, flaws and all. I never realized how my actions, reactions, and lack of maturity affected the people around me, especially my wife. The concept of, quote, not knowing what I don't know was eye-opening. For so long, I've been in this bubble of self-perception, believing I was right or justified in my behaviors when, in reality, I was oblivious to their toxic nature. Your content has been transformative for me. It's made me confront some uncomfortable truths about myself. And while the journey of self-awareness and growth is tough, I'm willing to take it on. I'm committed to being better, not just for my wife, but for myself, too. That brings me to a pressing question, one that I've grappled with ever since my realization. Given my newfound understanding of my emotional immaturity, do you think there's a point where I truly will understand myself? Will I ever reach a stage where instead of being blind to my own flaws and limitations, I genuinely know? Will I ever move from not knowing what I don't know to a place of self-awareness where I can confidently say, I know? Thank you for your insight and the invaluable content. It's making a difference, at least in my life, warm regards in the person's name. So the question is is wonderful, the way it's phrased, because I so appreciate this person's journey and especially grateful that I think it's a lot easier to embrace emotional immaturity, at least it has been for me, than been being questioned about narcissistic traits, tendencies, or full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. And then on that, that awakening of emotional immaturity, then let me say something I probably haven't said in a, two or three episodes. And 
I'm trying to be facetious there that I just, I feel like this is so important is when we go from that, we didn't know what we didn't know that when we start to find out what we know, it's still hard to do much about it. And that's a really uncomfortable place. And we're going to be there for a little while. That's, that's where the, the difficulties begins. That's where the discomfort kicks in and we're wired to get rid of discomfort, especially those of us that are more on the emotionally immature side. And we may even get uh, rid of discomfort in a really funny or cool way. We may learn to juggle. We may be hilarious and fun. We may just walk out and because we think we're doing the right thing and we don't want to make things worse. But it's still a way that we're getting rid of that discomfort. I think often when people are asking this question, they really want to know, will I ever just stop feeling uncomfortable? And and I think if we frame it that way, now we're talking. Because if we went from the I didn't know what I didn't know to now I know, but man, I'm really even not sure what to do. And I certainly don't do it very often. Then that next phase, that next one is that you do start, to, you start doing more than you don't. So you're far more aware and you, you're less reactive. And, and that opens up a whole new world of starting to really understand the things you don't know. And part of that journey is, is starting to really feel a lot of empathy for those around you. But then our default is when I start to feel, feel bad because now I have empathy and I'm starting to understand, oh, maybe I'm not the world's greatest person that I always thought I was. Then my default is then to want to get rid of that discomfort by taking the victim stance or getting angry or then pointing out the other person's flaws. So it, it does become a little bit circular for a while, but then eventually you become. So you go from that not knowing what you didn't know to knowing, and now I'm not sure what to do when I certainly don't do it as often as I need to. And then that that next phase, that next stage is now, now I actually do more than I don't, but that doesn't mean I'm perfect. And eventually you become, and the difference of that becoming is because that's just more of a, a state of being, a state of mind that now I recognize that I'm probably always going to have some reactions to things because I'm a human being. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, all the variables, the things that I still probably don't know. And we're going to talk about that today. But there's other factors. Am I hungry or angry or lonely or tired or these sort of things? And so when you can still look at the behaviors that maybe you exhibit, then look at those with curiosity. Don't beat yourself up. You're not a bad person. You're just doing and being. That That's where you can just continue to, to look inward, to self-confront, to grow. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. So I think one of the first things to do is I really, I, I appreciate being able to point out these differences between narcissistic personality disorder and emotional immaturity and then nice guy syndrome. And it can be nice guy or nice girl or nice person syndrome for sure. But that narcissistic personality disorder, and I won't go over all the, the diagnostic criteria. I did that in last week's episode, but it's in essence, it's a mental condition characterized by this grandiose sense of one's importance and a need for excessive attention and admiration, which also leads to a lack of empathy for others. And then often the person finds themselves having challenges in their relationships. And a lot of that has to do with their own fragile self-esteem. Now let's start looking at emotional immaturity. And I went into, some, I think, a lot of detail on that one maybe as well um, in last week's episode, if you want to go take a look at that. But it's defined by a lack of emotional development suitable for one's age. So that's where it can still feel like you are, you're just a little kid trapped in a, in a giant human body and you're still reactive. But so much of it comes again from not really knowing how the adult is supposed to act because maybe you didn't see it modeled or it wasn't rewarded when you were growing up. And that can lead to people struggling with handling their emotions and, and reacting, overreacting, reacting excessively or inappropriately. And I think one of the big challenges is I'm not saying that you don't have emotions, but 
those emotions are, they're cueing you in on something. Why do I feel those emotions? And if it's from some past childhood trauma and some things that are unresolved, then, oh, thank you, emotions, because that means that they, they are dying to get out. And that's a good time to go take a look at therapy. And I think that can help a great deal. And it's not just because I'm a therapist, but because I know, I know it works. I do coming from a healthy ego. I know that that works. And then if you're, if you're having reactions in that very moment, even with somebody you care about, it's still a you issue. And I mean that in a lovable way of what is this trying to communicate to me? And that's a big part of the episode last week on differentiation. And I'll touch on that a little bit more before we finish up today as well. And then if we jump right into, oh, actually, I didn't finish. I don't think I finished emotional immaturity because we talked about struggling with the handling of emotions, but that can also lead to difficulty in understanding and respecting the emotions and boundaries of others. And that's where you start to see that this this bleeds into the concepts that are leading up to narcissistic personality disorder. So I, I do believe it's this spectrum and then often has issues with impulse control. And if we get there today, I've got a really fascinating article about um, people that struggle with turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism and the tie-in with narcissism and emotional immaturity. And if we don't get to that one today, then that will definitely be something that we'll tackle probably next week. And then nice guy syndrome. This is something that I feel is often not included in this conversation around narcissistic personality disorder and emotional immaturity. But I know it's absolutely something that I personally had a, a great struggle with and a lot of the people that I work with do as well. But it's men, typically men, but again, we can call it nice person syndrome, but who believe that being nice or passive in doing so that they're entitled to social success, romantic success. And it's this com concept of then putting out uh, these covert contracts, almost making these subconscious tests in your relationship in order to prove if this person really does care because you certainly are caring and you're trying to do everything you can do. So if they aren't, then that must mean that they don't care about you or you are unlovable, but you lack the ability to express yourself because you maybe are not very good with your own emotional regulation. And then that also can be exhibited as people struggling with expressing their needs and desires directly. And so they typically are more manipulative to get what they want. And it really is coming from a place of not knowing what they don't know. And that can lead to the nice guy or nice person harboring resentment for not getting what they feel they deserve. So they double down with the same tool and just try to keep doing what they're doing. And then they often lack assertiveness and then they show up very passive aggressive. So I think you can see that there can be nice guy traits in the world of emotional immaturity and narcissism and narcissistic traits in the world of emotional immaturity and nice guy syndrome and emotional immaturity in both narcissism and nice guy syndrome. So uh, clear as a clear as a bell, right? I did I did want to give a couple of examples of what this looks like. I mean, if we take a setting of let's take a setting of a, of a party, maybe a function, a work party, who knows what it would be. But if we take the narcissist who walks into the party, they really are immediately expecting everybody's attention. And so if somebody else is complimented on an achievement, then they find a way to one up or boast or come up with a story. And it's so funny because they feel like they're just, I'm just relating to the person, but their story always tends to be a little bit more. And it's so I, I, I either had a different experience that was better or I know someone that's where it starts to feel like the one upper. Oh, well, a friend of mine's daughter's brother's friend is the world record holder in whatever that is that you started doing over the weekend as if everybody will go, oh my gosh, let me turn all my attention to you and hear about this person that I will never meet, even though this person is in front of me right here telling their story. 
And so then the narcissist then just continually changes topics back to themselves and then they become irritated if they feel like the conversations continue to move away from them. And so then they may even belittle others to make themselves feel better. They always need to take that, that one-up position of grandiosity. Now, you take an emotionally immature person. So if they enter a party, then they may become a bit more overwhelmed by the amount of people there. And so then if somebody then jokes about, hey, run a little late today, huh? They'll react defensively. Jeez, I, I didn't mean, I mean, I didn't know I was being, nobody was keeping track of time. Uh, I didn't know that there was a time I was supposed to or I'm going to get in trouble. Jeez. And then sulks around maybe the rest of the evening. Later, maybe when he's not immediately offered a drink, then he impulsively grabs one without asking for it, even if it was somebody else's, but he's not going to take ownership of it. And if somebody says, hey, I thought I ordered a, the, a particular drink, then he's going to look around. And, and even if he's now confronted, then, <clears throat> then oh no, that, I already had this one. Yeah, this you know that immaturity, not knowing how to deal with those emotions, not knowing how to take ownership of anything. And, and I think you can start to see the difference between the grandiose narcissist who he would just own the fact that he's like, oh, I, I took your drink because I wanted it. You know, right, guys? And then the emotionally mature person is going to not say, oh, my bad. I thought that that was, I thought everybody could have one. I didn't know that you had already ordered that one. Let me go get you another one. No, they didn't do it. They didn't do it at all. And then let's get to the person who has nice, nice guy, nice person syndrome. So then that person comes to the party and they just help out and they real, they refill everybody's drinks and they offer to clean up. But then they become frustrated when maybe the person that they have a, a crush on is continuing to talk to some other guy. And so then, then this person mutters to a friend, okay, I do all of this and she still doesn't even notice me, doesn't really want to hang out with me. And so then later he kind of sends her a passive aggressive message about that, hey, I really thought we were going to spend time together, but never mind me. I was just trying to help everybody that needed help at the party, but you just were talking to that guy the whole time. And so sending that kind of passive aggressive message and maybe ending it with a good old, you know, nice guys finish last. And then in the sad part about that nice guy syndrome, and this is where you see some ties in with emotional immaturity as well, is that may be what then does get them the attention. So then it becomes the way that they interact. And this is where you can start to see them pushing any button. I'm going to be really nice. And if that gets my needs met, then then I've got that in my repertoire. And if that doesn't work, then I'm not just going to be consistently nice for the sake of that that's who I am. Now I'm going to maybe try to make somebody feel bad. And it's basically trying to get whatever that person needs to do in order to get their needs met. Or let's let's take a look at this in in the workplace. So we throw the narcissist in there. So it's if we if we throw we'll call her Sarah believes she, she is she is the most valuable member of her team, and so she takes credit for other people's work and then wants this praise constantly. And now it's really frustrating. I've actually worked in a couple of environments before I became a therapist of people that you really thought you were on the same page, and then the person just takes credit in that moment. And then if the person's criticized, and even if you're trying to do constructive criticism, which is typically part of the the corporate environment, uh, this person in the scenario, Sarah gets defensive and then she retaliates by undermining her colleagues, might even do something to the detriment of the project or the team in order to make you maybe look bad. And then she will brag about her connections and her accomplishments, even if they are unrelated to the topic at hand. And one of the, the things that I think is really difficult to wrap one's head around is that People start to to tire of the true narcissist, and so they don't. They know it's not worth challenging them. And so then if you are that person that becomes the scapegoat in that world of the narcissist, then you do take on that behavior. And it's almost as if everybody has a subconscious pact around them where, okay, well, at least Sarah's kind of continually dumping on you because they know that, that it really doesn't matter what anybody does or says that Sarah's not going to take ownership of it. 
So then if we take the emotionally immature person, now put that person in the workplace and that person is typically typically going to struggle when they're hearing feedback because if their work isn't praised, then they're going to naturally assume that people don't like them and that people are out to get them. But then that leads them to then overreact when people do give them praise. Okay, well, it's about time. I mean, I, I, geez, I thought nobody would ever notice anything, which actually then makes you not want to give that person praise in the future. And so then that reaction, it can be either lashing out, it can be even shutting down. It's like, oh, okay, thanks, I guess. You know, and then, cause then you might even go further and say, Hey, Danny, what's going on? You know, tell me more. So they, they just start to struggle to manage their time. And then they may often blame others for their mistakes. So that would be that, what that emotional, emotionally immature person looks like in that scenario. And now throw, throw nice guy syndrome. We'll call him Alex. So here's the guy that it looks great. Always first offer help for colleagues, even if it's not his responsibility. But what's the motivation? Is it because this is just who he is? Or is he secretly hoping that by doing so, then he will be first in line for promotions or raises? And so then if, heaven forbid, a colleague gets a promotion over him, then he gets to become resentful and he starts to gossip behind the person's back. And whether he's claiming that he was too nice or that other person was a butt kisser or whatever it was, he has to come up with a reason why he was overlooked. It couldn't just be. And then an opportunity again for him to self-confront and grow. So, so those narratives, I hope in those, you can see the distinct behaviors and, and then even those thought processes between somebody that is showing up with narcissistic personality disorder or emotional immaturity or nice guy syndrome. So let me get back to this. This was that question again, because I'm going to, I'm going to check back in with the question a couple of times, because I promise you we're going to land this plane. So then the question. He said, that brings me to the pressing question, one that I've grappled with ever since my realization, given my newfound understanding of my emotional immaturity. Do you think there's a point where I'll truly understand myself? Will I ever reach a stage where instead of being blind to my own flaws and limitations, I'll genuinely know? Will I ever go from not knowing what I don't know to a place of self-awareness where I can confidently say, I know? So let me introduce you to a very interesting phenomenon called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I did an episode on the virtual couch long ago where I go more into the history of it. So if I can remember, I'll put the show notes, I'll put in the show notes that a link to that episode. But in in a nutshell, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a, it's a cognitive bias where people with, with low ability or, or lower knowledge in a particular area domain, they overestimate their competence or they overestimate their knowledge or they pretend to know things that they don't know. But then what is ironic when you look at Dunning-Kruger effect is that individuals with higher ability and higher knowledge then eventually underestimate their competence because in that, on that journey of learning, then they start to realize, man, there are so many things I don't know. So it's a, it's a little bit ironic, but it's also, I feel solidly on the road to emotional maturity is beginning to recognize that the more you know, the more things that are out there that you really realize you really don't know. But to the emotionally immature, again, low ability or low knowledge, you overestimate your competence and you start to weigh in on everything. When I was in the computer industry, I will admit I did this. I, I felt like I had to just know because I needed people to think that I was smart because I didn't dare admit that there were a lot of things I did not know. Then I move into the world of therapy. Thank goodness, so long ago, and I, I love it. I eat it and drink it and sleep it. I guess I don't know how I would really drink therapy, 
but I, but I really do, I, I live it. And so I read about it and I'm constantly just watching things and just processing things and trying to put things together. And so when I really feel like something clicks, then I'm going to sit in that healthy ego based off a of real life experience and say, Hey, these are things I know. But what comes along with that is of course, I know that I could, I, my, my opinion may change because there is so much more data out there that I cannot wait to find, but there's no way I'm going to find all the data. Recently, I've been doing more with internal family systems, and that is blowing my mind. And it's one of those things where I think in the past, I would have thought, oh, I got to pretend that I know this, but I don't. And so anybody that I talk to that knows more about internal family systems, I'm just like a sponge. I want to soak that up. And I'm starting to have this concept in my mind where things start a little bit squishy, and then they start to become more more tangible. And then, and then they start to become just another building block that helps in my therapeutic practice and helps me as a human being. So, but that's a fun one because I absolutely know that I don't know anything about it. And there are certain things like working in the world of eating disorders or things like that, that I have an idea of, but I certainly am no expert in that. But back in my more emotionally immature days or the younger days as a therapist, and I, and unfortunately I see a lot of therapists that do the same because they don't know what they don't know and they want to help people, but they don't know yet that there can be specialized skills that are needed to help certain things. So, if, and this is why I, so I go to that point of where sometimes therapists who are working with couples where there's a very emotionally immature person, they can, they cannot even know what they don't know about thinking if they can get rid of the discomfort in that room between the couple, then they're a good therapist, but they're missing a lot of the pieces to what that person is going through in that relationship. So Dunning-Kruger effect, then you can break it down into two primary concepts, unskilled and unaware. So people who are, are incompetent, sounds very dramatic, but incompetent in a particular area, they often lack the self-awareness to recognize their own incompetence. They don't know what they don't know. And this results in an inflated self-assessment. So then they assume then that they must know enough and that they, they don't even understand. By not understanding what you don't know, you are going to say things that you just assume are probably the right things to say. But when somebody's trying to then tell me about, let's just say, acceptance and commitment therapy, for example, and they're, and they're speaking the language of cognitive behavioral therapy, then I'm going to kind of know maybe they don't really understand acceptance and commitment therapy. But boy, they may think that they do. And, and it is such a better connection to somebody that says, I don't know a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy, but here are things that I think I know about it, but let's have a conversation. So that's that first unskilled and unaware. Now, the, the next co- component of Dunning-Kruger is skilled and self-doubting. So on the other hand, or the other end of the spectrum, people who are highly competent might then underestimate their relative competence because they often think that tasks are easy or that others have a similar understanding or skill set. So then they may even undervalue their own expertise. And you'll hear this, and I feel like in the end of a lot of sentences of people saying, I don't really know if that makes any sense, or, but I don't really know what I'm saying, or, yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm an idiot anyway. And, and that's where I want to just say, boy, when people are starting to step into that healthy ego, don't 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 undervalue yourself because that that confidence is actually what helps lift your light so that others around you can shine as well so how does this fit in with narcissism and and here's where i i think this is just so so interesting that overestimation of abil- of abilities because one of the hallmarks of narcissism especially the grandiose kind is an overinflated sense of one's abilities or importance and so this kind of mirrors the Dunning-Kruger effect where individuals, they will overestimate their competence due to the lack of self-awareness. So they can go big on the things that they just assume that they know and that other people don't. 
but they lack the self-awareness to really know, or especially to sit with any discomfort of that they may be wrong. And and that's because this narcissist inflated self-view, it can be so, so deep, so profound that they genuinely believe that they are superior, even when there is literally objective evidence that suggests otherwise. When someone, someone is again telling me, I had a, well, I had a fascinating session recently with somebody that has, has been very open about the fact that they now recognize they just like to, to debate and argue, but they almost feel like the, the goal of it is that if they can sound confident enough that then the other person will back off. But then they've had a bit of awareness of saying, Ooh, is that person backing off because I'm right or because they realize I make no sense. And, and I was so proud of this person. So we had a session recently where we were, we were, we were in a pretty good uh, conversation around guilt and shame. And they were trying to, in essence, convince me about the merits of shame. And I am, I am on the record everywhere I can go where, especially in helping people overcome things like turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism, take 1500 individuals I've worked with and, and shame has been a component so far in zero of their recovery. And I find no, no use of shame at all. So I, I just thought it was really interesting that he kept trying to continually come back to some place where then, and he would use the, the, the thing that people do, the verbal technique at the end of, right? So if he was saying, I mean, but then that's where I think we could agree that, that shame could be a benefit, right? I'm saying, oh, no, it, it, not, not in my opinion, but tell me more. And, but it was really fascinating because that's the part where um, people can start to become more aware and, uh, and, and that's part of this, this awakening process, but it will feel uncomfortable. So this, so that, oh, that's the one where this, the evidence already suggests otherwise. And so the, one of the, the other connections that you will find with Dunning-Kruger and narcissism then is that lack of self-awareness. So just as the people that are experiencing Dunning-Kruger effect lack the self-awareness to recognize their incompetence, then narcissists lack self-awareness about the nature and impact of their behavior. And then that lack of insight, then it really can be this, basically it's a defense mechanism to, to protect their fragile self-esteem or their fragile ego. So they, they are not aware of what they're not aware of, but they certainly, it can't be what you think it is because if you have an opinion, that means you must think theirs is wrong because there may not be room for both opinions. And then that leads to the, the last concept, which is resistance to feedback. So people that are exhibiting the Dunning-Kruger effect might be resistant to feedback, especially if it challenges their inflated view of self, self-view. And, and then similarly, narcissists often react offensively or can even be aggressively to criticism because then they see that as a threat to their self-image. But it's, it is important to note that not everybody who overestimates their abilities then is a narcissist and not every narcissist will display behaviors that are consistent with the Dunning-Kruger effect. But the overlap in behaviors and the thought processes does make the Dunning-Kruger effect. I think it's a really interesting lens to, to study and understand certain aspects of narcissism. And, uh, and I, I have told this example at times about what the Dunning-Kruger effect can look like in the world of a, of a politician. So this is a hypothetical and I want to give you what this would look like for two different politicians. They're heading into a town. Let's call it a bustling coal mining town. So both of these politicians arrive and they each are hoping to rally the support of the hardworking miners for a, let's say it's a major public office and they're both vying for. So politician one, this politician will call him Mr. Daniels, completely making that up. 
was from the same political party that most of the miners supported. And so what he did, he, he read a very, he was handed a brief that would talk all about what was going on in this coal mining town, but he just spent about four or five minutes reading it and he just figured, okay, I know enough. I know enough to then speak to these coal miners. And so he then gives this 30 minute speech about the challenges of coal mining. But as the, as the minutes tick by, the enthusiasm of the audience starts to wane because the miners were actually the experts in their own lives, in their profession. And they could easily see that Mr. Daniels lacked a genuine understanding of the challenges. So he would go on and on talking about the problems that they had and then the solutions that he could provide. But he really didn't know what he didn't know about what the coal mining experience was. And the thing that's really interesting from a, an emotionally immature or even narcissistic angle is that he wasn't aware that that really didn't make sense to try to profess that he knew what was going on in a city and in an industry that he really didn't know. So what that does is it creates a, a sense of cognitive dissonance with the miners. And again, cognitive dissonance is that mental discomfort that we feel when we hold two conflicting beliefs or values or attitudes. Because in this scenario, the miners were faced with this contradiction of supporting their preferred political party, represented by Mr. Daniels. Well, they, they also recognized that he was not genuinely understanding their problems. And that's, that's difficult. Cognitive dissonance makes us super uncomfortable. And as we keep bringing awareness to, we don't like discomfort. So politician two will call her Mrs. Turner. Now, on the other hand, she was from the opposite. There are different political party, but instead of pretending to know everything, she admitted that she had very limited knowledge and she read as much as she could in the brief and the time that she had. And she let the miners know that, Hey, all my experience about is about is, is it a bunch of reading that I've done on the flight over. But she said, I, I just, I'm so surprised at the modern challenges that you coal miners face. And I had no idea, but I, I feel your pain. And she candidly admitted that she had a lot to learn. And then she made a commitment to understand their needs and, and be of genuine assistance if she was elected. So this honest approach also sparked this cognitive dissonance in the miners because they were used to supporting their traditional political party, but now they were confused and, and they were confronted with a politician from the opposing party who actually seem more genuine and understanding. This The, the Dunning-Kruger effect, again, it's, it speaks to this relationship between one's perceived knowledge or skill and then their actual level of competence. So in this tale of Mr. Daniels and Mrs. Turner, Mr. Daniels, you know, he represents this first part of the Dunning-Kruger effect, unskilled and unaware. So with limited knowledge, he assumes competence. He believes that he understands the minor struggles after a very brief reading. And then that overconfidence and speaking about a topic he had little experience with, it's a classic manifestation of this Dunning-Kruger effect. Mrs. Turner, on the other hand, although not fitting the traditional Dunning-Kruger mold, she used her awareness of her limited knowledge as a strength. So instead of overestimating her, her competence, she then made it clear that while she had started this journey of, under, of awareness to understand the minors, she was absolutely still in the learning phase and she took ownership of that. And so then the, the reaction of the miners to both politicians kind of highlights the, the struggles of overconfidence and then the value of self-awareness because both situations force the miners to grapple with their pre-existing beliefs. And they were showing it just, it addresses how deeply these cognitive biases and then cognitive dissonance, how, how it's intertwined in the decision making process. Let me go right back to the listener's initial question. Again, given my newfound understanding of my emotional immaturity, 
Do you think there's a point where I'll truly understand myself? Will I ever reach a stage where instead of being blind to my own flaws and limitations, I'll genuinely know? Will I ever move from not knowing what I don't know to a place of self-awareness where I can confidently say I know? I feel like now I'm answering in riddles. Let me tell you one of my favorite ones. This is the man in a whole metaphor. I love this one. It's a, it's a metaphor from acceptance and commitment therapy. So picture this, you are in, you're in a vast field, you're blindfolded, you're running and you have a, a bag and in that bag is a tool. And all of a sudden, probably because you're blindfolded and we never really identify why we're out there running around blindfolded to begin with, but I digress, but without any warning, you fall into a deep hole. And so this hole represents that stage of basically, you don't know, I'm not knowing what I don't know, are those areas in our self-awareness that kind of remain unseen. And you start to then, you fall in the hole, you feel stuck, you feel trapped, and you are desperate for a way out. So naturally, you, you know you've got a bag, and you reach for the tool in the bag, and it is a shovel. And you are, you know what shovels do, you're a hard worker, so you start digging, because it's a tool, and you believe it's a solution. But here is the deeper layer to your situation. So the very act of digging, the very tools, the strategies that you've been employing aren't helping. So they might have worked in other situations because it's a shovel. But in this hole, that tool is only making things worse. So it's kind of like you've come to to therapy or self-help or maybe listening to podcasts hoping that you will find a gold-plated steam shovel because thinking that a bigger or fancier tool might actually then be the answer. But the problem isn't the tool itself, it's the context. It's the situation that you're using it in. So you might start to wonder, well, how do I get out of this hole? But that's where the paradigm shift is absolutely essential because it's not about figuring out how to escape, at least not immediately. It's about accepting the fact that you're in the hole in the first place. Because imagine in that in this metaphor, you're handed a ladder and you're still holding onto the shovel. So what do you do? Well, you set down the shovel and you start trying to dig with the ladder But ladders make really crummy shovels. So the real challenge is letting go of the shovel, letting go of the digging, and now being open to a new approach. So if we tie this back to this this listener, this journey of self-discovery, now we're recognizing and we're admitting our flaws and limitations, blind spots, and they can be super uncomfortable and daunting. But if we hold on to our usual methods, even when they aren't serving us, and it's a natural human instinct... Because it feels risky to abandon the only tools that we've ever known. But your pain, your discomfort, the realization that nothing really has has truly worked, that might be your most significant allies, you know, your kind of best friends, because then they can motivate you to let go, to make space for new tools and new perspectives and strategies. So then in essence, what I'm saying to the listener is are you ready? Are you ready to give up on the old ways that have kept you stuck and and embrace a new direction? Because it's not easy, but it's a pivotal step in this journey toward legitimate, genuine self-awareness and understanding. And yes, it does come with still a lot of discomfort. But then here's where the kind of back to that metaphor, the first step to getting out of the hole, again, is recognizing and accepting where you are. And, And it's not about frantically digging. And sometimes that's where that impulsivity of emotional immaturity or narcissism comes from. It's like, I, I got to get out of this hole right now. And then being able to recognize and then accept where you are. Again, you have to start seeking a different perspective or approach. And then even then to the emotionally immature or narcissist, it's often black or white, a one size fits all. Well, I tried, it didn't work. But in the world of emotional maturity, then it's that's that didn't work, but let's let's keep going. I'll figure out something that does work. 
So you're, you're on this like quest for genuine understanding and self-awareness and it's continually seeking new, it's, and it's basically, it's continuing to seek new tools or strategies to climb out of that hole because, uh, yeah, the shovel probably isn't going to work. Now you got a ladder. You weren't really sure how to use that. Maybe you're getting some rope or, uh, here's the part where I don't really know a whole lot of tools. Hammer is probably not going to work, but, but I think you get the point. Let me see if I can now hit that question directly head on. The journey from not knowing what you don't know to a place of self-awareness is not about digging deeper with the same tool. It's about realizing that sometimes we got to stop and we have to reassess and we have to find new ways and we have to find help to navigate our challenges. It's okay to not know everything. And with time and reflection and I think seeking guidance, you'll find ways to understand yourself more deeply and you will begin to climb out of that metaphorical hole towards this light of understanding. And it is scary but it's just liberating. And when you accept the fact that you truly do know what you don't know, you are able to then start to really acknowledge and take ownership of the things that you have learned through actual hard work. And I think one of the keys that I just wish I could convey with every, you know, every fiber of my being is that that starts to provide emotional safety in a relationship. That part of the biggest challenge is that as emotionally immature people, we show up very inconsistent. And that is really difficult for those that are around us. Because when we're fun, oh, we can be a good time. But when we're down, then people often feel like they need to walk on eggshells. And when they have to walk on eggshells, but then sometimes we're fun and sometimes we're not. And if we're the ones saying, I don't understand what you're doing. I'm happy now. Or if I'm sad, it's like, okay, look, I'm sad. Deal with it. We're holding people in our families hostage. So it really does become just so important to then recognize and sit with this discomfort and start to learn and grow. And then now let's, uh, let's wrap this one up. This one's gone. Uh, it's gone in a direction that I, I really enjoy. And I didn't even get to one of the topics I wanted to today. But now let's talk about differentiation. This is something that, that I did talk about. It was, la- I think, in last week's, last week's podcast. This journey that, and, and I'm going to, let me address the listener again. So I will say, all right, the journey you're embarking on, acknowledging your limitations, confronting your pain, being open to new tools and strategies has some really deep parallels with this concept of differentiation, which, which I talked about last week. Because think back to the image of those uh, almost like emotional pop quizzes that life throws our way. Because when we're presented with those unexpected emotions in response to what others say or do, it's life essentially handing us a mirror and prompting us to take a closer look. And then those reactions, they can be our most honest and raw reflections. But then again, here's that challenge. Sometimes that reflection gets, it gets muddled. It's like trying to look at yourself in a pond that's constantly being disturbed by just the water, ripples in the water, external influences. And I go back to Murray Bowen. He has this theory of differentiation of self. And he really does speak to this exact struggle because he talked about understanding the distinct line between our own feelings and thoughts and those of others. So as you're working through this process of confronting your blind spots, that it's not just about discovering what you don't know, but also recognizing which emotions and reactions and thoughts are yours and which might be influenced by external factors. So let's now take a look at what that path looks like moving forward. As you begin to embrace differentiation and recognize your unique emotions and thoughts, you're also embarking on this journey of self-confrontation and this process will not always be comfortable, but it might even feel risky because you're letting go of that shovel in the hole. But I promise that the insights that you're going to gain are just invaluable 
For example, the next time you find yourself really deeply affected by somebody's comments or actions, I want you to pause and, and reflect. Ask yourself, okay, is this emotion a true reflection of who I am? Or is it more of a product of external influences or expectations or even my past trauma, maybe my childhood? Because this process of self-inquiry then becomes your compass and it helps you navigate your inner landscape. And then over time, as you hone this skill of differentiation, you'll find that you become more resilient to all the external factors, the turbulence in your life, and then the dramas and the conflict and the emotional whirlwind that once had the power to shake you starts to lose your grip. So instead of getting swept up in every storm, you become this, in in essence, this steadfast anchor and you're grounded in your self-awareness and your understanding. Because in the grander scheme, I guess, of life, differentiation isn't just about emotional autonomy. It's about achieving a harmony between your individuality, like who you are and your relationships. And it allows you to be deeply connected still with others, but you don't lose your own essence in the process. And then the really cool thing or the the beauty in the journey is that as you evolve and become more differentiated, you also pave the way for deeper, more authentic connections with others. And again, this emotional safety. So embrace this journey of self-discovery. Because every step, every revelation, every moment of introspection is this building block toward becoming more self-aware and more differentiated and just basically a more genuine you. So thank you for taking the time today and and really start to learn to embrace what you know. And what comes along with that is what you don't know that you don't know. And that's going to lead to a lot of curiosity. So I'd love to get your feedback. If you have questions or comments, feel free to send them in at contact at TonyOverbay.com. And I will send you, I will send you, I will send you a, uh, some positive vibes and I will see you next time on Waking Up the Narcissist. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me, because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.